Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Tad Michaels filling in for Bill. Hamilton is moving to stage three on Friday. What does this mean for local restaurants and are they ready for phase three? A possible vaccine coming out of Oxford University is looking optimistic. A researcher said a million doses of its vaccine for COVID-19 could be produced by September. What does that mean? And have we been overloaded with COVID-19 worries and fears? How do we leave COVID-19 baggage behind? And what about the worries of a second wave? Dr. Sam McHale joins the show. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We uh, have uh, some good news that we heard on CHML News yesterday uh, from Premier Ford. The following regions will be able to enter Stage 3 on Friday, July 24th at 12.01 a.m. Durham, Haldeman, Norfolk, Halton, Hamilton, Lambton, Niagara, and York Region. As of Friday, thousands of more businesses will be able to open up. And we'll be there for them when they do. Now, one of those businesses that is opening up, moving into stage three, is the executive chef and owner of The Other Bird, among other places. Matthew Kershaw joins us on The Bill Kelly Show. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Good morning. I guess it's a really happy day for you and your staff. <laughs> You'd think it'd be that simple. Uh, <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell you there's a, a lot of mixed emotions about the whole thing. Uh, wh- why so? Is it uh, too soon for you, do you think? I know as much as everyone else does. We, we obviously listen to all the, uh, the medical experts out there, um, and we take it really seriously. Um, you know, our, our, all of our staff are very invested to make sure everyone is safe, especially our staff. Um, and no one seems to really know. We're watching other districts. Um, we're being cautious, and we're also cautious with how many people we think are actually going to come out for uh, indoor dining. We're not sure. Now, you, in addition, uh, we talk about the other bird. You also, the other bird uh, group runs restaurants like The Mule and Paper Crane and Burrow. Let's go back a bit, Matthew. When this first started and you got word from the government and uh, the health ministries that you were going to have to, obviously, in many ways, shut it down for a while, um, without getting into the specific finances, how much of a big hit was that for you as you try to kind of rethink the way that you did business starting in March? Uh, absolutely devastating. Yeah, I mean, everything about it, uh, financially and emotionally, uh, it, it was it was brutal. And uh, some of the serious conversations my uh, business partner Ann and I have had, um, you know, we, we talk quickly about, okay, are we... Are we Closing things, certain places down immediately, we bankrupting things immediately. Because um, you have to be realistic, you know. Uh, you see some of the buffet restaurants, I don't see them ever coming back anytime soon. So uh, we had similar conversations, and financially it's been... Uh, very unpleasant. Now, what did uh, you do? Because uh, I know that a lot of restaurants were obviously doing basically drive drive by, uh, pick up your food um, at the curb, order it in advance. You come in, they put it in your car. You have the masks, all that stuff. Is that kind of the way you guys did business uh, for the last several months? Well, it, it was a mixed bag. Um, some of our places uh, did not lend themselves very well to um, takeout dining, where others did, and trying to gauge uh, where the public appetite was, it kept changing very quickly. There was, there was miniature phases in, in, during COVID where things seemed quiet and then they took off and then they stayed and then they dipped and, and patios came back. And so every week things were changing and, 
readjusting of menus and staffing levels. And it was, uh, it's been a very sort of touch and go process the whole time. So bringing in this new thing on Friday is just another step in the same thing where we were making these educated guesses and um, safety of our employees is foremost and the customers. Um, and just trying to figure out what to do from there. When you were in stage two, you obviously kept an eye, so to speak, on the horizon, watching uh, the signals and uh, the messages that came from Queen's Park. Did you kind of have a feeling maybe last week that uh, stage three was coming maybe sooner than you'd like because you have to get your staff and everything ready? Yeah, we were we were relieved we weren't part of the, the first wave of stage three openings, and we felt somewhat sure it was going to happen this Friday. So we're not... We are not caught off guard. Um, uh, we, we've been planning and talking about all these things for uh, weeks and months now. Um, so we're not surprised, and uh, we are looking forward to it, um, but we're being cautiously optimistic. Now, we should say that Stage 3 allows for an increase in gathering, a maximum of 50 people indoors and a maximum of 100 people outdoors. So let's do the indoor part first. From a physical standpoint, uh, at, uh, the, uh, at the establishments that you own, uh, what, uh, how much do you have to do from a physical standpoint to get things ready uh, for 12.01 a.m. on Friday morning? <laughs> Uh, I think the most amusing part, and most restaurateurs will probably uh, agree with this, is we've got to deal with all the takeout stuff. So when COVID happened, the restaurant space became useless. And so you just started throwing all of the brand new takeout boxes, and there's so much of them, um, in the restaurant space. And they've pretty much taken over. They've really crept crept into it being a storage space. So trying to figure out where all those are going to go, because they didn't have a place beforehand because we didn't do takeout. Um, so it's not too bad. It's uh, some organization of cleanup, getting the staffing levels right. And the day of, I'm sure there'll be a couple of hookups, um, and they'll be quickly worked out the, uh, the day of. Uh, as far as staffing, um, I know you and like everybody else uh, it came in. A lot of people got uh, the SERB be- uh, benefits. Are most of your staff coming back, uh, hopefully, uh, knowing that now uh, you know they can kind of see the light at the end of the horizon? Yeah, I would say um, the lion's share of people are coming back. There's still a mixture of people who want to stick on uh, part-time and not go over the $1,000 an hour uh, mm-hmm. a month. Um, but for the lion's share of people, they look forward to coming back to work. It's nice to have something to do, uh, something tangible, putting smiles on people's faces. Um yeah, everyone's looking forward to having things return to some type of normal. Now, when people go to your establishments, uh, one of, uh, what can they expect? Uh, obviously, first of all, there is the mask policy, and we'll get into uh, what's involved when you're actually inside a restaurant in a moment. But what can the staff uh, or, or what can your customers expect? And I don't know if they're going to come in at 12.01 a.m. on Friday. <laughs> so let's say Friday night or the weekend, Matthew. Sure. When they come in, what can they expect? So I've been doing a ton of reading and talking with other people in other countries and districts and um, seeing where things and how things go. And I would say the general consensus is that it just feels a little different. It's not, there's not as much bustle because there's a lot more space and a lot less people. Um, all of the staff are masked and the customers until they sit down are masked, which is different. You know, a lot of people go to dine to have a great time. And so it feels weird is uh, sort of what I'm getting right now. Um, you do get, if you're looking to have great conversation, it's, it's a lot less annoyingly loud and echoey in some of the, you know, the, uh, cool young places. So, 
uh, that's one benefit, and uh, service is a little quicker, even though there's a few more steps. Will you be physically removing some of the tables if, if it's uh, basically 50 people indoors? Um, some of the places can hold that, some uh, maybe a little smaller. What will you be doing a- as far as uh, tables and chairs and the setup uh, when people come in? So it's going to be a mixture of the, the minimum six-foot uh, distancing and then logic and looking at how uh, people are going to flow and what makes sense and what feels right. Um, there will be some tables removed, yes. Um, I, I think it looks much better than I've seen some taped-off tables and stuff, and it, that doesn't feel good to me. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're looking to create a good dining experience. Now, people coming in uh, will, of course, have to wear the mask. And uh, I understand there's a whole, uh, not necessarily protocol, but there is a way that people have to do this. You're obviously not going to sit down and eat with a mask on. We get it. Uh, or, <laughs> or or have a drink. with, And that would actually be an interesting science project, but we'll, we, we digress. So when people come in, um, they have to wear their masks coming in, going out, I believe going to the washroom. Uh, take us through those steps. Yeah. So um, basically, the expectations, and, and we're not going to be, we will be, we're not going to be easy about this. You must wear a mask. This is this is a non-starter. If you want to argue about that, that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but we're not going to relent. If you don't want to wear a mask in the restaurant, go to somewhere else. Um, you must uh, wear the mask until you're seated. Uh, at that point, you may take the, the mask off. Uh, enjoy your dinner, your drinks, etc., so forth. All the, obviously, all the staffing, etc., will be masked. And if you need to go to the washroom or some other reason to move, uh, you've got to put your mask back on. It's just the way it's going to be. You know, we've been doing really great uh, as a city, as a country, at you know dealing with this. And you know, I know some people don't disagree, but I strongly feel there's not a big deal of putting a mask on, and we will insist on that being the case. You know, and and I know that there are going to be people that will, for whatever reason, uh, spout the line about, you know, goes against my rights and my constitutional rights. And we all know that in this case, the health regulations supersede that. Um, I'm I'm really hoping and I'm sure that your staff have obviously been been trained and kind of taught what to do in a situation that could become maybe volatile if somebody gets persistent belligerent that they don't want to wear a mask. Yeah, I mean, we're, it will happen. We, we, we've seen it happen uh, already, and that's fine. Um, we'll deal with it, and if someone wants to <laughs> be a not good person about things, then so be it. That's, that's more their problem than ours. So, Matthew, uh, just before we, we wrap up, it's again 12.01 a.m. on Friday. Um, it sounds like you're not quite sure. I mean, I know sometimes on the weekend you kind of plan. You think, okay, it's a nice weekend. People want to yep. sit outside. They want to come in. Sounds like you're you're basically almost, when it comes to planning for this, if you will, tossing, if you will, spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, we, don't, we, we know as well as everyone else does. I mean, <laughs> we've got our educated guesses, and that's it. Um, I believe we're going to see some good movements uh, when it's raining. Uh, people will try it. Before that, I think you're going to see mostly younger people um, in the dining uh, in the dining room. That's what I think. But I, I also don't know. You know, I mean, as long as everything's safe, obviously I want as much business as possible. But I mean, that's not <laughs> that's not the main goal right now. Uh, the main goal is keeping everything uh, safe and running smoothly. Um, so we'll see what happens. 
And, you know, we've seen the pictures and the videos, Matthew, of uh, what's happening with bars uh, down in Florida and down in Texas and down in the States. It's absolutely unbelievable what's going on down there. And I was uh, texting with a a colleague of mine in Florida yesterday who wants to move to Canada. I said, you can't, the border's closed. (laughs) But but the term uh, that this person used, she spelled Florida, uh, F-L-O-R- I-D-D-U-H, as in Florida. She goes, people don't understand the volatility of this virus. It's nice to know in this country, Matthew, in this city, that people are behaving themselves. Yeah. Most everyone has been lovely and amazing, and um, there'll be an occasional outlier, and, uh, you know, we're to do our best, and uh, we'll see what happens. Matthew Kershaw, the executive chef and owner of the Other Bird uh, Group, which also runs restaurants like the Mule and the Paper Crane and Burrow. Um, you've got a lot of work ahead of you. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Best of luck when 12.01 a.m. comes on Friday. Maybe in a little while we, we can check in with you and see uh, how things are going for you and your staff. So best okay. of luck to you, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. There's uh, Matthew um, Kershaw, as we mentioned. He, um, he isn't quite sure what to expect. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A researcher at Oxford University in Britain said that a million doses of the experimental COVID-19 vaccine could be produced by September. However, experts say it's unlikely they'll be administered until next year. We've got some medical experts to talk about this, one of whom is based in this area. Dale Kalina, the medical director of infection prevention and control at Joseph Brandt Hospital, joins us. Dale, thank you. Your immediate reaction to that news. I got excited. And then, of course, medical science always, well, hang on here. Let's not let's not jump the gun a little bit. Hi, Ted. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I agree. It is exciting news, and also you're also right that uh, we do like to be measured in our responses in uh, in the medical and scientific community. But it is positive news. Uh, the study itself that was released yesterday was um, it was a great result. So, Dale, uh, let's go back a little bit now. Um, yeah. I don't want to say that the medical community generally uh, across North America and the world was was maybe caught unawares by this COVID-19 pandemic, but when it hit, there was a lot of people and places and uh, and hospitals and everybody seemed seemed to be scrambling to kind of uh, get some sort of headway in the fight against the pandemic. So if you go from when it started in February until now, uh, and not being flippant here, have we made a lot of progress in the battle against COVID-19? I I think we have. Truth be told, this is, I, I think, a very good example of very early cooperation and participation around the world. What we're seeing is a virus that we first saw at the very end of 2019 in December. And even by early January, the genetic makeup of the virus was known worldwide so that those tests could already be made. So I think it's actually a very good example of us working at, working together right from the get-go. And, uh, and really, we have, especially in Canada, been able to see a lot of cooperation and a lot of uh, drive to, yes, be able to protect all of our communities, 
uh, but also work together to, yes, develop some uh, vaccines worldwide as well. You know, one of the things, Dale, I was talking to uh, a colleague of mine in Florida yesterday. She she runs a company down there, and one of the things that uh, she said on her text was, we're in bad shape in Florida. She goes, I had moved to Canada, but I, I don't think that they'd accept me. She has told me some horror stories about what's happening uh, in her state in Florida. There's other states as well. Um, isn't it great that we're working collectively here and people are basically doing what they have been asked to do? I, I think that it is. And I, I'm very uh, saddened to see what's going on you know, in the United States right now, also in Brazil and several other countries around the world. But it is important to recognize that the reason why we are doing as well as we are in Canada is because of that uh, collective spirit that we have and because everybody's really putting in that effort. Uh, it's important that we all remember that wearing masks in public and staying safe and if you're exposed to isolate yourself for 14 days, that's what we can all do uh, to help prevent uh, that sort of situation that we are seeing right now in Florida and around the United States. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dale Kalina joins us uh, on the Bill Kelly Show, the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Joseph Brand Hospital. Uh, if the second wave hits us, uh, Dale, and uh, there are people that say it is only a matter of time, it will at some point, uh, and you, you know, it's, it's far more of a certainty that that will than, than it won't, um, are you collectively, again, um, well, speak, speak for the staff at Joe Brand. You're, uh, is it fair to say you're a lot more prepared to handle a second wave should it hit? I think we know a lot more about the virus and about uh, what is important to do to prepare than we did in February. I think we know a lot more kind of the worldwide, uh, not just at Joe Brandt. But we're very well prepared and have been well prepared, uh, not only for the first wave, but you're right, uh, for a second wave uh, when it comes as well. Of course, everything that we're doing right now, not just at Joe Brandt, uh, but around the country to help decrease what that peak of a second wave would be like, and that's masking, looking into vaccines, and making sure that we have that capacity in PPE, we're doing all of those things really to help um, improve uh, all our collective chances with that second wave when it does come. Dale, I've uh, heard some stories and read some stories of uh, what this uh, pandemic and what uh, corona, uh, the COVID-19 can do to a person's uh, body, uh, especially in the lungs when they basically go in, get treated, recover. It could take a while, but I understand that there are some really lifelong lasting marks that are left in the lungs after somebody gets through COVID-19. This is a disease that's not to be uh, uh, futzed around with, obviously. I, I completely agree. And that's one of the important things to remember is that we are still learning more about the long-term side effects of this virus. What we saw quite early on was the short-term implications, the mortality rates, the, hospita uh, the hospitalization rates, and things like that. But what we are now beginning to learn more about is really what some of the long-term implications are. Because even when people get the virus, uh, should they have to be hospitalized or not, uh, they are starting to see more long-term implications. And that is some difficulty with uh, lung function. I mean, we've even seen some things like uh, the decreased taste and, and smell. And these are the types of, of pieces to the puzzle that we're still learning today. And, and really that, that nuanced bit of, of uh, those who don't die from this virus, uh, but do have significant disease. 
Dale, before we wrap up uh, this uh, segment, you know, it's it's interesting that when I, I, I read about the symptoms, um, it seems to be ever-expanding that the symptoms could be, uh, we've, we've heard about uh, the coughing and we've heard about the fevers, and but it seems now there, there could be dizziness thrown in. A lot of things that, if you will, uh, finger quote here, flu-like symptoms almost seem to mask what happens with COVID. So how does one determine the difference between the two? The major thing to look out for is to remember that the the flu-like symptoms can be a lot of different viruses, but what we see with COVID is that fatigue, that shortness of breath, uh, and also uh, the the fevers as well. And these are the types of, of symptoms that one should always be concerned about and should get checked out. And that's by your family physician or if you're feeling particularly unwell uh, in our emergency departments as well. And this... Uh, uh, long or this wide net of other symptoms is what we see when we have a pandemic. When we see so many millions of people being infected, you can see almost everything. But the main symptoms remain true of uh, difficulty breathing, uh, fevers, and uh, fatigue as well. So that's what you should look out for. And uh, thanks for the update. Dale Colina, the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control from Joseph Brandt Hospital. Um, Thank you for taking the time. I know that your staff has been busy, but I think that uh, maybe less busy now than you were several months ago. I know you're being very proactive, uh, but uh, we wish you all the best and stay healthy and we'll be in touch soon, Dale. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me, Ted. All right, so now let's uh, talk about this uh, actual, let's break it down in biology and how this works. So we're talking about possibilities of a of a vaccine. A uh, researcher at Oxford University said a million doses could be produced by September. Uh, he is a professor at the University of Waterloo. He teaches in the Department of Biology. Brian Dixon joins us on uh, CHML. Brian, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Ted. So let's uh, let's break this down. First things first, your reaction when the researchers said possibly by September and others are saying, hold on here. What does your gut say? Well, you have to think about what he said. He said they could manufacture a million doses by September, which I totally believe. Every year in Canada, we make 25 million doses or more of the flu vaccine in several months. Making the vaccine by September, easy. Making it available to the public, not so easy. Now, why is that? Because it has to be uh, clinically tested? Exactly. So, I mean, they they can make it. The paper that they published in Lancet that he referred to showed that you can induce antibodies and T-cells, the cells in your body that kill virus-infected cells. But we have no idea how many antibodies or how many T-cells are needed to actually kill the virus. Um, I can give you some other ideas about this paper. They tested 1,000 people with the vaccine, but they mostly just looked for side effects. Even then... They got no side effects only when they gave Tylenol to the patients. Um, They only tested about 43 people for the T-cells. They only tested about 35 people for neutralizing the virus. So they see things that are interesting and hopeful, but it's very small numbers of people. And the people tested were only 18 to 55, which is great, but that's not the vulnerable group. Brian, when you talk about side effects, because we all know, and uh, every time somebody gets a, a medication, there's always some sort of a side effect, whatever it is. Right. Um, is, so the side effects from this uh, possible vaccine aren't really anything that, that could be really red flag to say, hold on here, that's something we haven't really planned for? 
Well, no. I mean, I think the side effects that they measured are things you would get with any vaccine. You get uh, fever because you're having an immune response. You get uh, pain because <laughs> you've been injected with something. You get muscle ache. Immune responses do and sicknesses do take a lot of energy and make you feel that way. So they didn't see any severe, anything requiring hospitalization. But again, in only a few patients, right? I think that the phase that they're at is just small numbers. When you start testing in tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, that's when you start to see the effects. Most vaccines, the side effects that are severe for hospitalization, they aim for much less than one in a hundred thousand people for those effects. And you don't see those till you test lots of people. So if they start manufacturing in or producing it by September, and I don't like to get ballpark figures because we all know things can change. But when would you think that they could actually start clinical trials if this uh, being produced by September uh, fits the time frame? Well, they're actually going to start larger trials now. They said in their news release they're going to start with like about 10,000 people in Florida and in South Africa. Each of those groups, about 10,000 people. But that's the natural next stage. You have to vaccinate people in areas where the, the, the disease is and see if they get sick. But the thing is to see if they get sick, that takes several months of monitoring, right? So they can make vaccine by September. I think in their article they said they hoped it would be available by December, but I really think that's, that's optimistic. I think by the time they do the kinds of tests they need to do to look for side effects and to see large-scale effects, it's going to be March, April, next summer by the time they have the data they need to know whether it'll be it'll be useful for the public. Wow, that's uh, that's um, certainly well. That's probably close to a year out. I'm curious, Brian, from a, a physiological standpoint, when you talk about uh, the body creating T cells, kind of explain exactly what that is, because we all hear when you get sick, you know, you, your body can fight off whatever you have uh, in a lot of cases, but but explain the, the T cells and how uh, this particular virus um, seems to uh, be winning the fight against T cells. Well, I think that... Um most viruses induce T-cells. So you get antibodies when you have a new response, but that's mostly for things that are that live outside your cell. When things like viruses get inside our cells, which they do to replicate, it's antibodies can't get in there. So what you need is these T-cells. They're, the ones that are useful are called killer T-cells, and they will find a virus-infected cell in your body. And to use a Canadian analogy, that virus-infected cell gets to take one for the team. It gets killed, and hopefully it takes the virus with it. Right. So um, and that is the natural response. The thing is that it's always a race against time. The virus is replicating. And every time it replicates inside one of your cells, it produces like hundreds of thousands to millions of copies of itself. So it takes a long time for your cells to uh, your T cells to replicate up into enough numbers to actually fight it off. Fascinating, uh, Brian, uh, that uh, there there was a clip that I saw of uh, uh, the former president, Barack Obama, and I think it was, I don't know, maybe two two years ago, roughly uh, two, three years ago, talking about he kind of said in a a public address in a speech that there was going to be uh, some sort of a, a pandemic coming and a germ and uh, it's going to cause a lot of problems. I'm curious how he would have known that a, a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm curious on, on the whole stage or birth, if you will, of this particular virus, uh, knowing that it's out there, uh, but uh, then some governments decided not to do anything with it, and we, we won't get into the whole 
political discussion, but but what was it about this one that some people got the heads up about this several years ago? Well, I don't think it was this particular virus. I think it's just the viruses crop up all the time. Yep. Um, flu viruses, we get new flu viruses. When people live in close contact with animals, you get uh, it's quite easy to get a flu jumping from chickens to humans or pigs to humans. That's why we have swine flus and bird flus. So um, we had SARS, right? 20 yep. years ago, we had MERS, the Middle Eastern coronavirus that came out about 10 years ago. These things crop up with quite regu- regular frequency. And when people like humans live in very tight quarters close together, um, when they crop up, there are some that will take advantage of those close quarters and spread. We were lucky with SARS and MERS in that they they spread only when people were symptomatic and their death rate was not quite as bad as this one. This seems to be like a worst-case scenario, one that spreads when it's asymptomatic and is relatively much more deadly than other viruses. You know, I was going to say, this uh, this this virus uh, seems to have, if you will, a, a mind of its own. A lot of experts are saying, uh, you know, that they can't pinpoint it and they can't really nail it down because it, it kind of, I think the best line was from Anthony Fauci, who I absolutely admire what he said, you know, the virus will end when the virus decides that the virus is going to end. The virus is basically calling the shots. This one's a, a, a tough one, isn't it? It's very tough. And like I saw an article this week about how the, the British researchers saw six different sets of symptoms, <laughs> varying from gastrointestinal to headache to, to loss of appetite and gastrointestinal and headache and fever. And, and those they rough groups of symptoms you know, do not really correlate between each other. So it's very hard to pin it down and say, this is this particular virus. And I was going to say, because the old, uh, here it comes, uh, finger quote, flu-like symptoms uh, seems to have a whole lot of uh, of tentacles to this. Ryan, just before we uh, wrap up again, you we were talking about a, a possible production of uh, a vaccine. Um, the other issue, which, which you talked about as well, is when they start producing and testing, uh, and you kind of indicated it's not quite as simple as somebody here in Hamilton saying, yes, I want to be a part of this clinical trial. You're saying that they're going to take it to the places that really need it first, for example, Florida, right? Well, they're going to test it in Florida because the next stage is you have to see if it protects against the disease. In Canada, as bad as it is, you know, we have a replication rate of less than one. We only we have very few cases in Canada anymore, like only a, a couple hundred a day. They want to take it to a place like Florida where there's 12,000 new cases every day, where there's a high likelihood someone will get infected and they can see if it works, right? For humans, you can't um, give them the vaccine and give them disease and see if they survive. It's just not ethical, so they have to try it in the field. A fascinating look at the battle of... of COVID-19 and what uh, is on the horizon. Brian Dixon, professor at the University of Waterloo and uh, is uh, also a member of the Department of Biology. Thank you very much for breaking it down for us and we'll keep an eye on what happens in the next few months and when we hear that they're producing uh, vaccines, we'll, we'll heed your words to say that's only the first step. We've still got a ways to go. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank much appreciate it. Have a good Thank day. You. Interesting, isn't it? So there you go. September, maybe, and he said maybe next spring for the actual vaccine uh, being available. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This COVID thing has got so many tentacles and so many different uh, storylines. There's another thing that uh, is coming up, and that is the quote-unquote new 
normal. But what happens to us when we become into the new normal? We're in stage three in Hamilton. Uh, Toronto and Peel will hopefully be into stage three as well. Uh, Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about that and what we can kind of leave the COVID-19 baggage behind. Can we do that? Is Dr. Sam McHale. He's a clinical psychologist and a member of the Canadian Psychological Association. Uh, Dr. McHale, first of all, thank you. Good morning for, um, and thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Excellent. So let's, uh, first things first, uh, there have been so many, as we said on this program, um, and around uh, any media outlet, there's been so much talk about COVID-19 and all the different types of emotions that people have been feeling. There's been a lot of um, pent up, uh, at some point, I guess you can use the term anger, uh, anxiety, frustration, depression. Uh, was that uh, a common thing that people were feeling over the last four months? Absolutely. Um, We've seen a lot of that quite actually over the last several months uh, and certainly a significant increase in the kind of mental health uh, stresses that people have experiencing and reporting. Um, Sun Life did a survey uh, and does a survey from time to time of the Canadian population. And that that survey actually, in fact, uh, bore that out, that uh, during the COVID period, we saw that increase in depression and anxiety, um, and in, particularly amongst women, uh, likely for a number of different reasons. Both, both men and women were affected, but certainly the increase, percent increase, was much greater for women than it was for men. Doctor, I have heard that uh, from experts... Uh that I've spoken with, that it's okay for people to have, if you will, a bad day, maybe a couple of bad days, that it's okay mm-hmm. It's okay to be angry, you know, hopefully that, that type of thing won't continue. But did you find that when you talked uh, online to uh, some of your, your patients, that uh, a lot of them were just feeling a little off, or if you will, blab because of what was going on? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, factors like social isolation... Uh, we're a, a big driver in that. When people are cut off from their typical support network, when they're not able to get out and about in the usual way, um, there can be increased irritability, certainly, and that's to be expected. That's not necessarily a mental disorder. It's just simply a function of the increased stress that we're feeling as a result of that pretty significant change in our typical routine. Um, a couple of other things I think would, were drivers of that. Certainly having the entire family uh, for family units, uh, mom, dad, kids, always together all of the time uh, without much of uh, a separation as we usually have when kids go to school or when we go to work. Um, that, that can certainly increase stress. On the opposite end, uh, when you have young people that are living alone, young professionals that perhaps are living in a condominium by themselves, again, uh, being essentially separated from their usual network of friends and so on, and and spending those long hours by themselves, that too can really uh, lead to increased irritability. Those, those are typical, expected, and I would say even normal reactions to that reality. 
How much is not being able to control the situation a factor into this for a, a lot of us, not necessarily being control freaks, but just basically trying to make plans two or three or four days or a month down the road, birthday parties or you know family gatherings, and then finding out that you can't do it because of the pandemic. Not yeah. being able to control the situation. How much do, do, does that play into it? Well, that's a great question. Um, a couple of, couple of parts. To the response. First of all, we do know that uh, experiences of helplessness or being uh, put in a situation where we have very little control over what happens to us or the outcomes of our behavior, uh, the impact of our behavior, that that is tremendously uh, stressful. So, so that certainly is uh, a significant factor, exactly as, as you're suggesting. But the other, the other uh, factor to consider here, the other consideration is we need to be able to, in order to maintain good mental health and good uh, adjustment to, to life in general, we need to have the capacity to differentiate between the things that we do have control over and should reasonably have control over and things that are outside of our control. Um, and those things that are outside of our control, uh, you know, either letting go that expectation that we should be able to somehow affect those aspects of our life, uh, or alternative, uh, alternatively, finding reasonable ways to live with the reality that, look, this is something that uh, I'm not going to be able to have much of an effect on, uh, and therefore I'm going to direct my attention and my energy uh, and my coping resources to the things that I can reasonably affect. So, so, so making that distinction, what can I control and is reasonable to control and what's not uh, within my control. So now people are, as we say, in the Hamilton area, stage three. Uh, I know Toronto and Peel and Windsor-Essex will be in that uh, phase hopefully relatively soon. But now when people start to make plans, because they do have to get at some point, I'm sure that they want to you know, have a follow-up checkup with their doctor, their mm-hmm. physiotherapist, a psychologist, a nutritionist, any ist that you want to bring into this, uh, what, uh, because everybody's going virtual care and that's fine, which it's a little strange getting used to it, but uh, people are getting used to it. So what will that virtual care appointment look like when people start to make plans for the future? Right. Um, great question. So virtual care, first of all, I think one of the things to, to note is, uh, and I'm talking here specifically about, say, virtual uh, mental health care, um, although I, I suspect this applies to other forms of health care as well. The, there is some research has been done on that, and the type of virtual care where there is face-to-face contact between the individual seeking care and the practitioner, and it's occurring in real time, um, the research suggests that that is as effective as seeing someone, seeing the practitioner in their office. So there is nothing that's that's really lost. At least that's kind of the general finding. Now, there may be some specific differences depending on the person's condition. When you first see a, a practitioner uh, using virtual care, uh, the first thing that is likely to happen is the practitioner is going to ask you to verify your identity uh, and, in particular, your place of residence. That's really important because the practitioner needs to be registered or certified, licensed, in the same jurisdiction that you're living in. So, obviously, in the case of Hamilton, 
the person needs to be uh, a licensed or registered practitioner in the province of Ontario. Um, as well, then, they'll go through things like the limits of confidentiality, uh, obtaining informed consent to make sure that you understand the nature of the services that are being provided and those are a good fit for you and so on and so forth. These are the typical things that would happen in the course of an in-office visit as well. The other thing that's really critical is to ensure that there's some sort of backup mechanism should you lose, say, internet connectivity. So again, usually the practitioner is going to ask you for a cell phone number or a landline number or give you his or her number so that if the calls, if the internet connection drops off, then the appointment can still continue on uh, without too much, uh, too much disruption. Those are, are really key uh, components of doing virtual care. And then the rest tends to be very much like what happens in the office, uh, talking about a little bit about the nature of treatment, trying to establish goals collaboratively in terms of where care is going to go. Uh, certainly when I see patients, one of the things that I speak to them about is uh, letting them know that finding a good practitioner or a practitioner rather that's a good fit for you is not an automatic thing. So we're going to take the first couple of sessions to see what kind of fit exists between us. And if either one of us feels that the fit is not there, then uh, then certainly I'll take care to ensure that I give the person some referrals to someone else that might be better suited for them. So those are some of the things that you can expect uh, in virtual care. One other thing that's really important is, as a consumer, you should always ask uh, the practitioner what kind of platform they're using, if it happens to be video conferencing, to ensure that it's secure, that it's encrypted, that your privacy uh, will be protected. Um, but the other thing that you want to do yourself is go into your, the settings of the device that you're using and check which apps have access to your camera and to your data because that can be a source of hacking uh, and obviously that would compromise your privacy. So there's a couple of safeguards that are um, that are essential when you're doing virtual care. When you uh, look now at uh, the planning for the next little while, uh, our guest, by the way, is clinical psychologist Dr. Sam McHale. Uh, is what the virtual way of dealing with patients now, do you sense that that is going to be almost the way of the future? Uh, I don't want to say the new normal, but more of that being done as opposed to people coming into a, a physical office? Well, I think it is now an option that people have that gives people a lot more flexibility. So in other words, uh, take, for example, if I happen to be struggling with a significant life transition, uh, you know, maybe going through a change in relationship status or having lost someone that's close to me or any number of things that would bring someone into treatment. Uh, but the practitioner that I feel I'd like to go to uh, for convenience and in terms of reputation, in terms of uh, what, a number of other factors is someone who, that doesn't have evening hours, and I happen to work uh, during the day. Um, it's possible to use virtual care then to be able to find a private space in my uh, workplace, uh, have an appointment uh, during during the day, during the work hours, if, uh, if that's agreeable to my manager. Uh, so it gives us that kind of flexibility. 
Um, I, I think as well, people that have challenges around child care or around transportation, uh, virtual care can be uh, certainly a, a very helpful option. So there's a lot of people that still prefer coming into the office face-to-face, and I certainly saw that in my own practice. Uh, I had about a third of my caseload uh, folks that I had been seeing before COVID that decided to put treatment on hold until we can go back into the office. And once we went back into the office, they came back. They just weren't comfortable with the, with the idea of virtual care. Um, but other people found that it was quite a convenient thing, and they've actually carried on uh, with that format. So I think you'll see a mix. I don't know that it'll necessarily be the new normal or the standard, but it will be an option that's available to people that creates more flexibility, more options. Doctor, just before we wrap up, I I know that uh, in many ways, uh, stress in our lives can be good. I know that there is, if you will, good stress. It kind of deals us, uh, helps us deal with stuff. Uh, Again, it's the stuff that we can't handle is uh, what seems to be causing the most angst. Uh, But I would say that dealing with uh, a pandemic is something probably when it comes to stress that none of us really needed. I know that some businesses have regrouped and kind of changed into the way that they do businesses some businesses won't be as successful, but uh, but kind of just talk about the whole psychological aspect of dealing with this, because there, are, as we say, there are some that are rising to the forefront, others not so much. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. You know, one of the, the, the fundamental markers of mental health, positive mental health, is the ability to adapt to the circumstances that come our way. Uh, so having some degree of flexibility and having uh, a repertoire of responses, coping responses in particular, is really key to being able to adapt effectively and maintain a sense of, of, of well-being and health. The pandemic, you're quite right. It's nothing that any of us uh, were necessarily prepared for. It's nothing that it's not something that any of us thought was going to come our way. And it's presented a lot of challenges. Uh, some of the things that we've already talked about, social isolation, uh, the, the disconnection from our usual routine, disruption in work, uh, perhaps even not being able to work, uh, being laid off, and so on and so forth. The hallmark of mental health, or one of the hallmarks of mental health, is then being able to roll with that um, so that it's not necessarily your eliminating the stress, but you're reducing the effect to which it constricts your life. Um, and and that's, that's a really, really important thing in maintaining a sense of adaptation overall. Um, it's also recognizing when stress gets to be uh, excessive. In other words, it's kind of getting to the point where it exceeds our own internal coping resources. Knowing that it's time then to reach out uh, for help from someone who's going to help steer you through that process, whether it's a professional or perhaps a close friend, an intimate connection that you have, or people in your family or people in your faith community, if that happens to be part of your life. So, so that's the other, I think, key thing is knowing what our limits are, reaching out for help uh, without feeling any sense of defeat or sense of shame in that, uh, but also having that capacity to be flexible. 
Fascinating look at how to deal with uh, COVID going forward when it comes to your mental health. Clinical psychologist, Dr. Sam McHale, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, and hopefully we all still will stay healthy and move on to stage three collectively, safely and smartly. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Tad Michaels. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an opportunity. Make sure that you rate it and review it.